Well, I'm sure all of you are as deeply stirred as I am by the first half of our worship service. Two highlights of our service have been particularly stirring for me. We began this morning's worship with the procession of the cross and the flag. The combination of the two alone would indicate that this is somehow a different sort of day, a special day in the life of our church. I hope it also indicates that the love of our country is a permissible and even desirable affection. The second highlight has been the music of our choir and this wonderful orchestra. Not only have they sung the battle hymn of the Republic, and if that doesn't elicit chill bumps, I don't know what can. They have sung the battle hymn of the Republic. They have made a fantastic, amazing case for human freedom since the Civil War. To live in a country that holds the words of this song as an ideal, to believe that in a very real sense our nation is about the mission of God's kingdom of goodness and justice, to believe this and to know that it's true is a priceless heritage for those who are here today and those who will come beyond us. Our choir also sang another beautiful song. In the song, This Is My Song, we heard an acknowledgement that not only is it good for us to love and to honor and cherish our great country, but it's good to know that not only are we blessed by God, but that God loves all peoples. God loves all nations. Peoples of all countries have a right to be proud. We feel as Americans, and perhaps deservedly so, that God has his special hand on this place, but God loves all nations and all peoples. God is a lover of all. And he prays, we pray, and he desires that not only we flourish as a nation, but that the peoples of other lands flourish too. Reminds me of the words in Revelation chapter 7 where there is this wonderful description of what heaven will be like, what it will be like for us and others as we gather at the great throne of the living God. And John, the author of Revelation, says, there will be a great multitude, too many to number, and they will come from every nation and tribe and people and language. We love our country, and God loves our country. And someday, we'll be united with the peoples of other nations whom God has deeply loved. And we will be together at this great throne in a celebration honoring this God who loves us all. I'm so grateful for the choir's message this morning. There's a famous photograph that all of us have seen. It's the most famous photograph of World War II. It's the one you see here, the memorable picture of our flag on Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima in the awful, horrible, frightening battle of Iwo Jima in World War II in February of 1945. 
there during this horrific battle, a photographer took that image, and in one four-hundredth of a second that it took for the shutter of the camera to make that image, a message was sent to a very war-weary people that there was hope, there was promise, and there was freedom in that great flag. The six men who were raising that flag that day cheered a nation exhausted by war, wondering what the future of our country would be. And in his book, Flags of Our Fathers, James Bradley, who was the son of one of the flag raisers, tells the story of those men whose images we see in that photograph. Three of the six men who raised that flag on Iwo Jima were killed later in that battle. So half of those men didn't even make it off the island. One died later back in the United States of war-related disease. Two went on to live normal American lives. One of them, James Bradley's father, who lived in Wisconsin, who lived a, a dutiful, servant-filled, lovely life with numbers of children, a strong man, but who himself would remind his son when his son put together this book that the scars of war were a very painful thing indeed. Such is the plight of our heroes, and such is our debt to those who defended our freedoms, to know that they suffer even when they succeed. We who live now are the heirs of the legacy laid by not only our founders at the beginning of this nation, but also a legacy secured by heroes such as these. And this day, this day, it's good and noble and right to proclaim with gratitude to God our thanks for our freedom. St. Augustine, who back in the fourth century said this, and I think it's a good way to understand why we do this. He says the best way to define a people is by discovering that one thing, that one loved thing they hold in common. The American answer to the question of what is that one loved thing that we hold in common, people of all political persuasions, people of all backgrounds, people with all kinds of differing opinions, that one loved thing we have long held in common is this wonderful notion of freedom. We're a people who believe in ever-expanding opportunities. We've always been, as Americans, this mobile folk who would be willing to move and to try new things. We've always been an assertive people, probably sometimes in the eyes of other countries, obnoxious. In our assertion that we can be who we're called to be and that we have opportunities that others don't have. We believe that freedom provides the opportunity for people to find their successes, though that struggle is much more difficult for some than others. And surely most of us here have been profoundly blessed. We believe that the ideal of freedom is that people can be whom God has created them to be. And we're called as a people to remove as many barriers as possible so that others might experience the joys of freedom. 
We've always, as a nation, loathed the systems of nations that rule their people with an iron fist, and we have committed blood and treasure so that we could back up that belief. On this day, so much is right with our great country, but we also have a sense, at least I do, that we're, we're somehow losing steam as a nation. I hope it's not true, but there are moments when I feel like we're on a slow slide morally and financially and socially to the point that our best days are behind us. I trust I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But I think many people feel we've stagnated for answers for problems here, and we struggle to understand what is our role with nations abroad. Mostly, a lot of us wonder whether the next generation or even our own children will have the same opportunities that we've had. It's possible that I'm just thinking negatively, but I don't think so. Something has changed, and it's something that God's people are concerned about, and it's something to pray about. Our country's in a wrestling match with itself over the bonds and bounds of freedom. Oz Guinness, a brilliant observer of American life and a friend of this church who has preached in this place, has recently commented in a new book that American freedom is always in danger not only of decline but also of becoming too much of a good thing. He also states that claims to rights and entitlements entitlements without duty are destroying the cultural soil in which all rights and freedom itself have to be nourished. Let's say that again. He states, claims to rights and entitlements without duty are destroying the cultural soil in which all rights and freedom itself have to be nourished. The second symbol of this morning's worship of God is especially precious to us. It's the cross. Though it is now obviously a widely loved and displayed symbol, it defies logic that the cross became, in essence, the Christian logo, that it became the very demonstrated symbol of the Christian faith. The cross originated as a means of torture and death by the Roman government. The mere sight of it in its day would cause people to just tremble in fear, let alone the fear and agony that it produced for people who were hung on it. If a religious movement started out today and pretend for a moment that Christianity had never existed, but a religious movement started today and it had as its symbol either an electric chair or a hangman's noose or a firing squad, the culture would think those people are crazy to make that their logo. I mean, how unappealing would that be to hang the symbol of an electric chair around your neck? You'd think those people were odd at best. Depraved would be the word that would come to mind. And yet Christians, the early Christians, adopted the cross this instrument of execution as a permanent sign, a logo, 
that we put in our churches and that we wear around our necks and that we make the sign of the cross at the baptism of our children and we have it on our gravestones at the end of our lives, this cross, this instrument of torture and death became our logo, our symbol. This is who we are. This is what we believe in. It's this symbol that defines who we are and what we believe. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul addresses the serious problems that the Christians in Corinth were having. The serious problems were problems not just of the age of the Corinthians. They can happen anywhere and they can happen to us. The people of the church were arguing about position and place. They were proud. They were arrogant. They were seeking their own way. They were pushing for status and control and power. And they saw the gospel of Christ as a ticket to their own advancement. And in their boasting, they made it all about themselves, not the reality of Christ crucified on a cross for them. Paul seizes the opportunity in this passage to shut the door on this twisted thinking He insists that the decisive act in the drama of the salvation was the work of the cross, the death of Jesus on the cross, and that in the light of that, all matters of status and self-advancement and self-achievement and boasting, all of those matters are irrelevant and absurd in the light of Christ's suffering and death. The cross, Paul said, confounds all human wisdom It confounds all human wisdom because it was, after all, an instrument of death that became an invitation to life. In verse 24, he says it simply, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. American Christians, folks just like us, all over our countries, all over our country, face a challenging time as we figure out the biblical, the implementation of biblical principles in an increasingly secular age. We clearly have the right to speak up about our concerns, and we have a great deal to add to the public conversation. But we have to approach this wisely. There are plenty of fools speaking out there, on all sides of all matter of cultural battles. But our best wisdom will be rooted in the wisdom of the cross and the message of the gospel, not in our own opinions. I have a confession to make this morning, and many of you don't know this. Ah, you're listening now. (laughs) What's this guy going to say? Though I was ordained to the Christian ministry in my early 20s, I have also served as an elected official. For six years of my life, I was the walking embodiment of the conflict of church and state. For six years, I, was, um, I served in the legislature of my home state. I'll tell you more about that, and I won't belabor too much about that today. 
But this stuff I'm speaking about, I have seen from both sides of the political fence and the the Christian ministry fence. It's a long story why I did this. Part of it was I had not served in the military, and I had always hoped to do that, and I didn't do that, and I wanted to serve my state and perhaps my country. I wanted to give back to a place and a people that had been very good to me. The other alternative is to say that I just simply had a midlife crisis early and got it over with, which is not a bad idea. The short of it is I took a leave of absence from the church that I was serving and ran for a legislative seat. Now, I won in a landslide. Well, okay, 38 votes. <laughs> but from my own experience, I learned many things about the process of lawmaking, and I learned many things about the struggles that elective officials face. I learned the job isn't easy, and the more you think through your decisions rather than just cast them, you know, as what comes to the top of your head, the harder it gets to do that job. I learned that political bodies are comprised of people just like us. We are, after all, the ones who send them there. And I learned that they make mistakes just like all of us do. I also learned, and pray this will be true for you, that they deserve our prayers more than they deserve our scorn. But that's a sermon for another day. The main thing I learned as a young, idealistic Christian who was earnestly seeking to advance God's causes through the political process is this. If, I, if you don't hear anything else, hear this that the acquisition of power for the sake of the gospel is a risky proposition. I'm glad when Christians run for office. I'm glad when many ascend to high levels of political power. They are called to that. It's a good thing. They deserve our prayers and our support. But I'm increasingly convinced that we have a duty to influence the public debate We clearly have that duty, but that the acquisition of power for power's sake is at best a distraction from our core mission, that the advancement of the message of the cross, a message often viewed by our culture as foolishness, is in fact the only message of enduring power. Let me say that again. It is the only message of enduring power. And if acquiring worldly political power were the highest level of interest of the Christian church, then our culture would have flocked to us a long time ago, but they haven't. Our nation thirsts less for our opinions than for the message of the cross, that Christ laid down his life so that we and others could find it. You may remember, in 2006, there was a very tragic event that happened in this country. A deranged man went into an Amish school in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and he shot 10 people, five of whom were children who died. He then turned the gun on himself, and he killed himself. 
It was a horrible thing seeing these Christian people. Yes, we think they're a bit odd, but they are thoroughly Christian as a community. And we watch these thoroughly Christian odd people face this trauma in an unusually grace-filled way. The world watched them, and it was stunned at their reaction to what had happened. Obviously, this tight-knit community was racked with grief over the loss of their children. Obviously, they were totally, completely broken-hearted. And yet, the morning following the shooting, they loaded up their buggies, and they rode out together to the home of the shooter, to his now widow and their three children, to deliver them baked goods and food and support. A secular newspaper writer wrote that he saw one of the fathers of one of the slain children hold the mother in his arms for an hour as she cried, as she wept over the loss of her husband and over the tragedy that had happened to their own family. The world couldn't quite figure that one out. Frankly, I I wouldn't be made of the stuff to do what those Amish people did myself. To offer a radical act of forgiveness, these people who live in our culture without any shred of power were far more influential to the culture that day than had been anybody else that could have imagined a use of some sort of a power to remedy this problem. They simply used the gospel of God. Toward the end of Luke's gospel, he tells us of the account of the conversation of two of Jesus' followers who were lamenting their sorrows at the death of Jesus. Unknowingly, they encountered Jesus, but they didn't recognize him. They were walking along away from Jerusalem. They were walking along the road to Emmaus. Only gradually did the revelation unfold that this is Jesus that they're talking to. He looked a little different. They, they didn't understand it was him. For these disciples that day, hope died on that cross. They were lamenting together their sufferings and sadness as they walked along and they shared their thoughts about who Jesus was and they referred to him as a prophet. And then they said they hoped that Jesus, they'd so hoped that Jesus would be the one who would redeem Israel. What they were really lamenting was they always hoped at the last moment Jesus would slay their enemies, that Jesus would make the world right that Jesus would, live, would, would, would lead a political revolution or an armed insurrection against those hated Romans. That was their hope. But instead, he allowed those Romans to put him to death. These two guys weren't getting what Jesus was about. But their confusion was widespread and in some ways understandable. They were fugitives from Jerusalem, They were afraid this occupying government was going to come after people like them. And there were many like them, many like them, who thought that Israel's Messiah would be a military or a political liberator. Jesus 
explained to them, and then they recognized him, that the Messiah was meant to suffer for the sake of the people. His goal wasn't political victory. His goal was spiritual freedom. As the disciples became aware of this and aware of Jesus, they realized and they started putting it together what the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection meant. Their faith was renewed. Their hope was clarified and their hearts were lifted. And then they rushed back to Jerusalem to share the great news of what God had done. This account helped set the table for what the early church would do and how they would deal with secular authorities. Their primary mission in intersecting with the world would be evangelism, an evangelism rooted in conversation and peaceful persuasion rather than in the exercise of power. Eventually, the church rejected that biblical ideal They began to imitate the Roman state. It copied the methods of Caesar. The church of the martyrs became the church of the Inquisition. And instead of being known for its compassion for children and the poor and the sick and the outcast, it developed a thirst for power. The church over time corrected this and became true to its mission again. We will always wrestle with the tension of power and proclamation. God would always choose proclamation and service over power. Our message to the world around us is that we believe in human freedom. A freedom found in the scriptures, created in God's image. People are able and have the ability to make certain choices. This freedom is easily abused. It's not limitless. The world today criticizes Christians for imposing their values on the world. Our goal is never and not to impose our values, but our goal is to propose the values of God. We offer them. They may be rejected, but we have the mission of proposing God's will and ways for humankind. That's who we're called to be. And we're at our best when we're not looking for power, but when we present the case to free people to act wisely on their impulses and for all of us to engage in civil debate about the matters of our day. In the meantime, we proclaim from our pulpits, but also in our daily life, that this seemingly foolish thing called the cross is the hope of all people and the wisdom by which we seek to live. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Would you pray with me? Lord, you have made all the peoples of the earth for your glory to serve you in freedom and in peace. Give all of us who live in this great land of America a zeal for justice, a concern for those who are being left behind, the right restraint of our own liberties, 
and the passion for the cross so that all may know not only freedom, but the joy of serving you, the living God. In the name of Christ and in the power of his cross and resurrection, we pray. Amen.